It is a pleasure on this episode of ELGA Connect to welcome to the program Dr. Bridie O'Donnell, the Head of the Office for Women in Sport and Recreation in Victoria. Bridie, hello and welcome. Hi, nice to be here, thank you. Lovely to meet you and to talk to you. I'm really keen to hear a bit about your office and the work that you do and also uh, in the context of COVID-19, how things have been travelling through your office. Uh, but first, if you could just set the scene for us, because when your office was created a bit over two years ago, it was a first in Australia, wasn't it? Yeah, it was created in response to an inquiry that was held um, by the current government looking into the opportunities, access to facilities and leadership chances for women and girls in sport and recreation across Victoria. And the report um, that was created uh, came with nine recommendations and the results of the inquiry were actually quite damning on how inadequate our state and probably many other state and territories were in providing equality uh, for girls and women, for them to use facilities, for them to seek participation opportunities, or even to look at leadership opportunities in sport and rec. So these nine recommendations turned into the creation of an office. I started in, in very late 2017 and then had a team of uh, three people join me uh, by April of 2018. And since then, what we focused on is understanding the needs of the sector um, and then looking at particular cohorts, whether that's around being regional or rural, whether it's around being English as a second language, whether it's mm -hmm. uh, girls who are interested in non-traditional sports, or whether it's even looking at issues that are probably broader than us around pay equality, uh, media representation of women and girls in sport and recreation, uh, and then, of course, board quotas and leadership and decision-making, which has been a real priority for our office. Quite a few elements in there. And I see you've got Change the Game behind you. I do recall change when our Change game. the Game, change our game when that was, uh, was launched. Was that a, 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 an initiative of your office or was that already in place? Uh, no, this is this is the name of the suite of initiatives that our office funds and creates yeah. and has as linked to events and um, scholarship programs, ambassadors, etc. Um, so not so much a campaign, but a, a war cry, if you like, around levelling the playing field, around thinking differently about how sport is delivered to people, about how sport is accessed, and whether it's equitable, inclusive, and allows for people to bring them whole, their whole selves to that team or that environment. So I have seen and read a lot about that program and you're telling me this has been achieved with a team of four. Did I understand that correctly? That's right, but we're extremely yeah, powerful. Indeed. Strong, um, and we have good energy. So how are you measuring the success of this, of this work? It's a twofold um, measurement, if you like. We're using a framework based on the recommendations and those nine recommendations, which people can look up if they look at the inquiry, were probably more broad catch-all statements like, let's elevate the number of women represented in sports media, or let's increase the opportunities that women and girls have for professional development. But what we then created were a suite of initiatives under the banner of Change Our Game around um, delivering scholarships or putting investment into networking events and bringing education to people who work and volunteer in sport. So we're measuring satisfaction with our program. We're measuring um, visibility and reach of Change Our Game on social media and mainstream media. Uh, we're performing an evaluation of every dollar that's spent and whether and how it's impacting individuals, clubs, associations and organisations. And then we're making, if you like, an environmental scan of what is happening in the world around gender equality broadly and gender equality in sport. Now, people talk about leadership for the times and there's no doubt that I have been both blessed and burdened to be the inaugural head because uh, I came in at a time when no one had done this before. So already I was winning. 
Um, and then I came in at a time when AFLW had just accelerated. They'd just been the first season completed. And we've now seen uh, an exponential increase in the number of girls engaging in footy and other not what we'd call non-traditional sports for girls in the last two years. We've also seen the Me Too movement internationally and we've mm. seen the American women's national team win the Women's World Cup uh, in France last year with over 1.1 billion viewers of the Women's World Cup. And in fact, we find out in two days' time whether Australia and New Zealand will win the bid to host the 2023 Women's World Cup. So the landscape has changed enormously and what that can mean is both a greater number of allies to our cause, if you like, uh, a greater number of supporters to the idea that equality is important. But we also then see um, sometimes a greater fear by those who are either holding on to positions of power they don't want to relinquish, or a fear around distribution of funds and whether if more money goes to women, does that mean less money goes to men? Is there mm. a pie mm. of money that should go to a sport or a club? And what does that mean for me? So people understandably, um, even pre-COVID, um, had levels of anxiety around what equal distribution meant for them personally. Um, and we have seen over 100 years in Australia of generally investment into white, straight, able-bodied, sub-elite men's sport. And we could probably even narrow that down to being Aussie rules, NRL, cricket, motorsport, and even horse racing has superseded investment into mm -hmm. women's sport. So that's, that's the baseline we are coming from. And now by asking, uh, yeah, do we want to see a Women's World Cup cricket in Australia? And we saw 87,000 people show up to the MCG um, in what seems like 100 years ago, but it was only March of this year. Extraordinary, isn't it, how quickly times move. You mentioned AFLW. Obviously, that's been a very significant um, factor in the last couple of years in terms of the exposure of women's sport. Have you seen that flow through to other sports as a direct result of the the coverage that aflw and the success that aflw has enjoyed yeah absolutely it's elevated the um the prospect of being a professional athlete no doubt um but it's understandably raised some of the um uh, eyebrows of plenty of sports that have been investing in women for a very long time hockey netball obviously cricket has had professional and elite women playing for decades um, so for, for many people they think yeah that's nice that you're that aflw's come along to the party but you're right they've had a very slick marketing team that said your career as an aflw player is pretty short every season is you know shown shown to be seven to ten weeks long um, and we also have a whole suite of, of women who are paralympians and olympians and high performance athletes in this state um, that need ongoing investment ongoing support and increased visibility uh, in the lead up to next year's tokyo olympics so we service and serve an enormous diverse cohort of people um, and from my perspective as a health practitioner my two priorities and this is my personal agenda are just firstly everyone moving their body and reminding themselves how good their body can be and feel when you get active and get sweaty and get your heart rate elevated but secondly women in decision-making roles has been the final bastion to crack if you like in the sport and recreation sector um, while we have a board quota in Victoria, uh, I think just a couple of days ago, the IOC published a list of every single international sporting federation, and not one of them has gender equality on their board. Wow. And the majority of them just have one woman on a board, perhaps of 10, 14 or 18 people. So those boards are not reflecting our community. They're not reflecting the different races and ethnic backgrounds and religious backgrounds or sexualities of the people in our community. 
but they're basically failing on gender representation. And that means you've got a lot of people in a room making decisions about important outcomes that are all thinking the same way. Hard to see it as anything but tokenism in many respects, isn't it? Um, Bridie, the model of the Office of Women in Sport and Recreation in Victoria, has that been picked up and replicated in other jurisdictions? Are others watching? They're certainly watching and we're very, very pleased to collaborate and share information with every other state and jurisdiction and in fact even with New Zealand around what they're doing for board quotas. That's been most of the body of work that's been taken on by other states. So South Australia has a board quota, um, New Zealand is developing theirs and Queensland and, and New South Wales, sorry, are, are focusing on that as an element for funding eligibility. Mm. But no other state or territory government has an office for women in sport and recreation per se. They might have channeled investment that comes from their sport department, or they might have a female-friendly facilities program similar to ours. Um, but the, there hasn't been a single um, sort of focus of investment and the creation of a workforce to support that. Um, which I think is a loss for those states. And we certainly are very fortunate in Victoria, but we get a lot of communication from people who live in other states saying, how come we don't have one of these? Can I apply for your grant programs? Um, I think that things are tracking that way, but there's also other approaches that states take for their own political or legislative reasons that I'm not yeah. privy to. I do want to talk about COVID-19, but I'm, I'm fascinated by some of these other issues, such as in thinking about and asking you how you measure success in this space. Obviously, a big factor is media coverage, media exposure, and traditionally, men's sport has had the lion's share. Do you monitor that, and can you see progress being made in the, in the equity, I guess, in the coverage that is, is given? We do monitor it, and um, there are also external groups like Siren Sport Collective, um, and even in individual industry groups and universities that are monitoring representation mm. of women in sports media. Um, the bad news is no, it's not improving. It's not shifting. Uh, if we look at back pages of newspapers and we look at um, coverage on mainstream uh, free-to-air television, it remains at less than 10% of all sports coverage is dedicated to women in sport, whether they're individual athletes or teams. And yet, as uh, Tracy Holmes um, very eloquently put it on Q&A just last week, when more recent um, uh, research has been done around the teams that most inspire Australians, the top four teams are women's teams. And the number one team uh, as a sort of a team that represents greatest sponsorship opportunity, best return on investment, greatest level of inspiration and the people that you'd want your kids to grow up like, the Australian women's cricket team is number one. They displace the Matildas who are now number two. Uh, number three, the Diamonds, the netball team and number four, the Opals basketball team. So. That says to us that families, sponsors, television networks all want to see those women compete on the main stage. So the disconnect happens somewhere between what people want and what the owner of a newspaper or the owner of a commercial television feels people need to hear. And that disconnect um, is deeply frustrating, but we've seen um, a lack of success around the idea of quotas in the media and reporting. And of course, we've also seen a terrible decline in the investment uh, in regional newspapers, in uh, you know the, the leader newspapers that we get in Victoria. And I note today there's been enormous budget cuts across the ABC, ABC television and radio. And that's devastating because of the ABC and SBS, but particularly ABC have been dedicated in 
not just the coverage of women in sport, but the language they use around it. They're the first network to call them the Australian women's cricket team and the Australian men's cricket team, instead of calling them the cricket team and the Southern Stars, which really denotes the women as being below the men. That's an interesting stat too that you provide around those teams. And it occurs to me you'd go a long way to find a, an individual sports person that, uh, that uh, um, doesn't capture the imagination any more than Ash Barty, for example. Um, Absolutely. So, there's, there's obviously a long way to go and there's some systemic issues there that, uh, that somehow need to be exposed and dealt with. I wonder whether you see COVID-19 as perhaps an opportunity to reset somehow and uh, try and come out of it even and, and stronger. Have you thought about how that might be? Yeah, I spoke about this on Offsiders program of, um, about a month ago where I talked about the idea that we should be bouncing forward after COVID, not bouncing back to the good old mm. days where we delivered sport and recreation to sort of, as I said, these sub-elite men's footy teams. Um, that we've got an opportunity to be more inclusive, to be more diverse, um, to ask ourselves what we might need to do better and differently, to be more efficient with spending. And I say we as in sporting organisations could think um, there could be mergers of associations and clubs that have serviced not enough members but have lost uh, their own revenue and, and have been impacted by COVID. But the one thing that we know to be clear about the impact of COVID, and if I think about this just in Victoria, We've seen an increase in the number of women in caring roles and responsible roles, um, you know, that have been impacted by unemployment, mm -hmm. greater number of women on JobKeeper and JobSeeker. And we're also seeing that when uh, an organisation is standing down their staff, and if I think about many of the sporting organisations who've done so, they're standing down the bottom half of their staff who are predominantly women. So they're retaining highly paid male executives and women are losing their jobs in sport. And that's not a good thing. There's then no pathway for those women. Uh, there's no junior women to be mentored and developed. Uh, and we're also seeing, at, I know we've seen leaders in, in sporting organisations be displaced. Cricket Australia obviously has a new CEO. Um, and Raylene Castle's departure of Rugby Australia was uh, a role littered with scrutiny and criticism that was mm. mostly unwarranted. Um, but that was wholeheartedly because of her gender. No one got rid of, um, you know, Kevin Roberts because he was a man or because he had too many children or because they didn't like how he wore his suits. And yet what we see about the commentary of women in leadership roles continues to be gender-based um, and objectifying of their appearance, their voice, uh, their clothing style or their lack of children. And until we shift those um, attitudes towards women and we extend more respect to women in leadership we're never going to see enough women uh, being in positions of leadership who make decisions about broadcast or make decisions about where funding goes mm. um, and and that's now is our opportunity to think differently and to continue asking those questions it's a broader topic there we could spend some more more time on perhaps perhaps another time um, i'm just thinking uh, the, the bulk of our audience for this program variety is local government um, where do you see local government and councils in this space are they doing enough are they helping the cause, particularly through the Change Our Game initiative? So many of them are, and we've been really fortunate to partner with VLGA on some really great initiatives. And we had a great forum back in 2018 around boards um, and committees and how to see more women in leadership. Um, and we've had enormous connection to local government through the Female Friendly Facilities Program, which is delivered by our colleagues in Sport and Rec. We know that people who work in local government are the point of contact for community sport. They own the fields and the pitches and the, and the leisure centres and the, and the courts. Uh, they have connection to community. They're the people who clubs come to with questions. 
um, the knowledge and capacity of people working in local government, particularly in the sport and rec center, sector, is so vital. It's essential to a thriving, inclusive environment, um, but one that can also support sporting clubs and associations to be better, you know, to answer their questions, but to also understand how they might leverage investment. We've seen that happen in the infamous Moreland model, but there are a lot of other councils that are starting to think, okay, if we own the assets, what can we do to ask our clubs to be better citizens, uh, to ensure that they're not racist or homophobic or sexist or exclusive, um, exclusionary to others? So there are a lot of ways local council can improve and state government is the same. We can all be better at saying, hey, we're here to help you, but we also expect something in return. That's a transparent working mm. relationship. And I think sometimes historically, state governments and possibly local governments have been grateful to be involved in sport. There's almost that dynamic around it's a privilege and it's fun and it's a perk. When actually it's a service, it's an industry we need to service like the creative industries, uh, like agriculture. We serve you and we help you and we fund you and you do things for us that align with our policies um, and our strategic direction. And when we see those relationships working in a really functional way, uh, we see great outcomes for the residents of those councils. It's an election year for local government. I wonder whether we'll see a time, and maybe this time this year is the time where you'll actually see candidates campaigning with platforms of promoting and increasing um, the role of women in sport and opportunities to participate. Do you think we'll see that? I imagine we will, but I also hope we'll see um, that broader intersectional piece as well, which looks at um, not just the pale male and stale, with no disrespect to you, but you know, we, what we often see when we see women in leadership or, or gender equality is that people like me benefit, white, well-educated, straight, able-bodied women. But what about women who don't speak English? What about women with disability? What about Aboriginal women and girls? Um, there are so many cohorts of our community and then particularly disengaged youth. I mean, you mentioned earlier around COVID, what we know is families have been really hit hard by losing their jobs, paying for sport this year that they haven't really been able to engage in. Um, and they're gonna have kids that can't afford the stuff that they used to or families and parents that think actually, I'm gonna to have to take a pass on re-enrolling next year for something because we as a family can't afford it. So um, financial um, investment into sport doesn't always need to be about the dollar amount. It needs to be about what's smart and efficient and reaches the most number of people. You've given us a lot to talk, talk about, uh, to think about there, Bridie, and uh, we're out of time, but I've really enjoyed that. And hopefully we can have a return visit soon to explore some of those other issues in, uh, in more detail. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Dr. Bridie O'Donnell, Head of the Office for Women in Sport and Recreation in Victoria on today's edition of 